the system has been made to make it easy for the doctor, right? And it's been made so that uh, the insurance company and the doctor have some sort of agreement and has nothing to do with the person's health. So when you take a body of doctors who don't question anything and just say, you know what, the pyramid makes sense, right? And when you combine that with an incentive not to do any better, right, the patients suffer. And so that was me, right? Yeah. I was, I was with the smartest doctors, and I'll tell you, they don't know shit. This is Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. Part of the package of curiosity that I try to serve up here are questions that people think about but don't often ask. Maybe because they're too shy, embarrassed, or because the question is considered taboo. This episode is one of those taboo ones. The CDC reports that 73% of Americans are overweight. And while there have been some amazing body positivity movements in recent years, that doesn't change the medical reality that being overweight is a strain on our physical health. And I'm sure you've noticed that most doctors and nurses are also overweight. So how do medically educated people fall into the same trap as the rest of us? How do we take advice from those for whom the same advice is not working? These are questions I explore with this week's guest. He was 350 pounds and practicing medicine. In our discussion, he shares insights from his story, and around the 30-minute mark, he gives nutritional counseling to high school Meredith, who was herself a little chunky monkey. If you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did with an expert on food addiction. It's episode 76. If you've been with me for a while, I want to thank you for pressing play today. I know health is both a hot topic and one that can come with some built-in shame, I think you'll find the only shame my guest brings is to the system that's failing us all. So thank you again for leading with your curiosity. It's not easy growing a show that literally defies the algorithm and sometimes ask taboo questions, but all of you make it possible. And if you're new here, welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious disrupt the algorithm, and grow into better humans. We talk about everything from divorce to de-stressing. So bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. All right, enjoy the show. They say never take advice from someone you wouldn't want to trade places with. If you've been to any doctor's office lately, well, you already know what I'm about to say. (laughs) How can we take advice from overweight physicians? That's the tough question my next guest asked himself. He was a 350-pound medical doctor failing to find results from mainstream advice until he did his own research, applied what he learned, and lost 150 pounds. Now he helps others break free from yo-yo diets and preventable disease with his private practice and his podcast. 
Today, he's going to talk about his story and answer the question, how can we find vitality in a system that supports disease tolerance? Pragmatic practitioner, teacher of transformation, board-certified internal medicine and obesity medicine physician, Dr. Tro Kalajian. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, what an introduction. <laughs> so, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's uh, you know, it's funny. People ask that. Can you take advice from an obese physician? Like that's an interesting question. And I was that obese physician and I gave advice for a long time. Uh, and I was smart. That's the worst part. I was so, uh, you know, like I'm not trying to toot my horn. I scored on the 90th percentile on my board exam. So I was smart, but I had no idea how to manage chronic disease. And that was clear, you know? And so how can somebody or, or a profession be so smart yet so dumb? Oh yeah. That is the big question, isn't it? I, I would love to hear your perspective of what it felt like from to be in your shoes, what it felt like physically, what it felt like cognitively to be carrying that weight around, especially as a physician? Well, just imagine, okay, you, you go through years of training, you, you know, you go to a Yale affiliated internal medicine program, you take the board exam, you score it on the 90th percentile, you think you're hot stuff, but you're not, right? And all the stress, the sleeplessness, it catches up with you. Um, you gain 10 pounds a year, and uh, you find yourself insatiably hungry, right? And in fact, you were always hungry. I mean, back going back to when I was, you know, 10 years old, I remember I had a nickname. It was called the vacuum cleaner. And that's what my cousins would call me because I had this voracious appetite. But when you're young, you could kind of get away with it. But then life catches up with you. And then I'm gaining 10 pounds per year in medical school, college before that. And then in residency, another 10 pounds per year. And, um, you know, what they teach is calories. Uh, you know, you got to count your calories, right? But, you know, they don't teach you that that is incredibly wrong, right? It's incredibly wrong to focus on something like calories. In fact, focusing on calories saps most people's willpower, right? When they have to track calories, count calories, they feel like their willpower sap, but they don't teach you that. They tell you, hey, look, this is the messaging, right? And And you accept it because... You know, we, why would we question, you know, the, the, you know, the, they made a pyramid, right? Based <laughs> off of evidence. And at the bottom is, you know, bread and, and then you have fruits and, you know, potatoes and beans and that's, that's healthy eating. So why, and the AHA says vegetables are healthy and, you know, the AHA says don't eat red meat. So I, why would I question any of that, right? We're, you know, this is evidence-based medicine, supposedly, right? And uh, that's the problem, right? Is that really, really smart doctors say, maybe I don't need to question it. And that's my story. That's what it was like. It was, you know, I'm a 90th percentile score on my internal medicine board exam. I was a chief resident in a Yale program. I'm not dumb. I certainly have willpower, right? Um, so... Yeah, I think you think you know something, but you don't, right? And what did it feel like? I mean, tired all the time. You know, imagine feeling tired all the time, never having the energy, never wanting to, never like, you know, you remember 
exercising in, in your youth and loving it. And now it's like, I can't even dream of exercising. It's like a chore. Every part of your body hurts. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, you're not depressed, but like, you just know you're not living to your potential. Right. And, and so, so many people around you are having similar experiences like, oh, you're 30 now, you know, your knees are supposed to hurt. And well, it's genetic, don't you know? And I'm certainly medical school parts of it probably felt <laughs> like hazing with the lack of sleep and, you know, the rigorous stuff that you have to do. So it's kind of like this accepted defeat um, of, of mental energy and motivation. Yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, everybody's gaining weight around you, and and it's funny, you know. I'm I'm training with the brightest minds and and uh, leading cardiologists, leading endocrinologists, and they're saying, well, maybe you should just count your calories. You know, it was almost like, and and it's funny. I remember, you know, somebody posted me this one of these experts in uh, in obesity medicine, and you know, I was so enamored by her, and I, um, you know, I said. Uh, you know, she said to me, maybe you're depressed. And I was like, so lost for why I was overweight that I would sit there and take the depression screen like a couple times a week, like maybe that explains it. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I wasn't depressed, certainly maybe, a, you know, more confused than anything else. But that's how um, desperate I was to find a way to break free. And, and then, you know, if you look back and you, you it kind of all makes sense. I mean, you know, I'm, I don't have a willpower deficiency. That's not the issue, right? You can't go to medical school, get through medical school, do that and have a willpower deficiency. Most people don't have a willpower deficiency. Most people, uh, you know, do also what they're told, right? Like you can, you can see that with, you know, uh, yeah, there are some people who won't do it, but for the majority, most people like take anything in recent times, you know, like masking, 80% of Americans wore masks, right? right? 80%, right? 80% got vaccinated. I'm not telling you to do it or not do it or whether it has merit or not, but if they're told to do something and it's healthy for them, right. most people will do it. So uh, the thing is, is that um, I did what I was told. I would count my calories, but then, you know, when you're sleep deprived and you're, you know, it's a late night or you're out of code, you know, at the hospital and you see a brownie or something like that, or you see a cookie <laughs> on the table, you're not like, it's not like you're ignoring it, but you just don't think about it, right? You're not like, most of our eating is subconscious. So the whole concept of counting calories, is just, it's not, uh, it's not effective. Most of our eating is subconscious. And if you eat more, if you tend to eat more, like the vacuum cleaner, right? So <laughs> you will eat much more subconsciously than the average person, right? So, so the thing is, this concept of counting calories, it puts undue pressure on the people who are most likely to gain weight. Nobody ever said, why are you eating? You know, nobody asked me that. They said, did you count your calories? Maybe you're depressed, right? Those are the things people said to me, you know, uh, with regards to my weight. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think it's interesting because kind of what you're alluding to is, well, a lot of people continue to have this kind of struggle, uh, yet they're doing what the, you know, doctors, the experts recommend, and they're still kind of stuck there. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, doctors are doing the best that they can in the system, right? Um, but the system's overwhelmed. 
no, 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 no. They're no. not doing the best they can. Nope, nope. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't stand by this any longer. They're not doing the best they can. Okay, because it's so easy. It's so easy um, to do better. It's so easy to do better. And I was just, I was just reading. So here I have right now, right in my arm. Okay, this is obesity, the research journal, right? And I have an article that was just published, right? I'm just looking at this article. It was just published. This is the most, this is like the best and the brightest in obesity medicine. Oh, my God. This is the best and the brightest in obesity medicine. And here is a leading prominent uh, university setting up a primary care-based weight loss program. And in six months, they achieved a three-pound reduction in weight, okay? In six, and that's three pounds, yeah, versus the people who are not in the uh, intervention. Three-pound difference, right? If so, I have a good poop, it's three pounds difference. <laughs> so, so I'm what? sorry, okay? So, and they're publishing this. Here it is, published, right? So you can, you can see it for all the people. It's published, this, you know, three-pound difference in weight at 12 months. So in our program, right, we just published our results. In six months, we got a 38-pound weight loss, right? So if you think to yourself, how do you do this? Right? How is it? How is it that Tro did this? You know, and you talk about uh, they mean well, right? Well, what exactly does it mean mean well? When they told me for years count your calories and maybe take a depression survey, do they mean well? I think that they were lazy. Mm. I think they didn't give a shit. I think, right? It's my belief, right, that they didn't question the guidelines for seventy years. They didn't say, "What if we're wrong." They didn't say that, right? Mm -hmm. And the leading experts didn't say that. And only a small fraction of people said that. And those people were shoot off the stage like, like Robert Atkins. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I, I don't think that they all mean well. I, you know, and we can't just give them a free pass anymore, right? We can't do that because they're not growing. Our profession is not growing. In the past 70 years, obesity has blossomed, diabetes has blossomed, arthritis has blossomed, mental health has blossomed. All of these things have expanded seemingly exponentially. And so we can't any longer say, well, it's the patient's fault, you know, mm-hmm. just be a little less sad, just, you know, have a little less cancer, eat, you know, eat less, have a little less joint disease. It's, it's not acceptable. And so, you know, when you say they mean well, what I think you mean is they had intentions to heal people to go into the profession. Yeah. Maybe that's true, but they don't give a shit enough to do something about it. They don't, they don't care. They accept, you know, the way it is. And that is really, really dangerous, right? That's dangerous for people who need better. And it is so clear that we need better. I think we all need better. Yeah. And then the problem is, is, I mean, you talked about the system. This is like the most important part that I think most people have to understand is the, the, when we talk about the medical system, we're talking about insurance company paying doctors right. to see you, right. To, to basically uh, see you again and again. Right. So there's no reward for the physician to heal you. Mm. In fact, he's penalized he or she is penalized when they get you less healthy and, they, and you need them less often, 
right? So they're, they just make money when they see you. Like, come back and see me. Come back and see me. Come back and see me. And the more they see you, the more money they make. And, and the sicker you get, the more they see you, right? So this whole system and the more stuff they do to you, the more they get paid. So, uh, and the person is left out of it. It's, it, it, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a person, there's a doctor and there's an insurance company and the insurance company, and the doctor, they have this arrangement that the person knows nothing about. So, um, if you really want to affect people, you need to find in, in that system, that insurance-based and counter-based system, right? It is basically made doctors not care. And, and then what they do is they prescribe drugs. And some of these drugs are helpful, right? Some of the drugs are helpful, but what the drugs do is they, the doctor now did something, so he's safe. Yeah. And the doctor now has to see you to refill them. It's easy for the doctor. So the system has been made to make it easy for the doctor, right? And it's been made so that uh, the insurance company and the doctor have some sort of agreement and has nothing to do with the person's health. So when you take a body of doctors who don't question anything and just say, you know what, the pyramid makes sense, right? And when you combine that with an incentive not to do any better, right? The patients suffer. And so that was me, right? Yeah. I was, I was with the smartest doctors and I'll tell you, they don't know shit. Well, I think what it's interesting when we talk to doctors, um, you know, maybe friends who are physicians or just, I don't know, nurses and, you know, they talk about the system being burdened. And so the question that kind of comes up in my mind, you hit on is if the system is so burdened, you know, the CDC says 73% of adult Americans are overweight. So clearly the answer is, yeah, the system's burdened. So if that's true, if we accept that is true and not being overweight would cause a reduction in these preventable diseases that are in fact overburdening the system, wouldn't it make sense that every doctor would have a conversation with their patient about being within a healthy weight, but that's not at all what happens. And you just kind of explained how, you know, the behind the curtain of it. It's about time we stop uh, letting physicians get away with this. Like stop going to shitty doctors. Like just stop. Yeah. So that's like, the, not helping you. That's the question is about, you know, people who are wanting more, they're kind of opening their eyes to like, hey, you know what? Um, knee pain doesn't have to be just a regular part of my life. I don't have to have to accept that. Uh, or maybe they're healthy like I am. And when I go to the doctor, they have no idea what to do with me. <laughs> you know, it's a very frustrating experience because I'm there for uh, as a well person. They're looking for extended vitality. And that's they're like, yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> so for people who are in either camp, right, healthy, looking for vitality or unwell and looking for sustainable solutions that aren't automatically pharmaceutical, you know, how are they supposed to start that conversation with a physician or find the physician that will have the right conversation without any medical background themselves? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I don't, I don't blame them because, uh, you know, you have two camps of doctors or, or like two gross camps. You have, you know, people who are way deep in the weeds and, and, and drinking the Kool-Aid and, you know, maybe they're doing all sorts of things that are, I wouldn't say I wouldn't do them, but I wouldn't say that there's a strong evidence based for them, right? So, I mean, you'd imagine 
like your typical medical spa with, you know, acupuncture, Botox, plus or minus Botox, plus or minus IV infusions, plus or minus red light, plus or minus holistic herbs, right? You have this camp of doctors, but what they embrace is let's get you well. Their, their culture of let's get you well and let's think differently is great. But what they turn to, you know, often when you're dealing with things that are, don't have a strong evidence base may be questionable. And then you have the alternative, which is your conventional doc in a box who's like red light, like, I don't know what that is, you know? <laughs> um, and you, you know, low carb, like that's ah, going to give you a heart attack. So there's a, this, there's this middle ground, right? Of I need a team that can get me well, keep me well, keep me disease free, you know? So there's this huge gap, right? People know to find the IV vitamin shop where to go. People know if they want conventional doc in the box, where to go. And then it's like, well, wait a second. We're all the like the the real people in between. It's kind of like politics. You know, you yeah. get these like crazy people on the left and these crazy people on the right. And you're like, where are all the, you know, where are all the normal people? And, you know, people can't get good care. I think the f- first place to start is find care outside of insurance. If you want excellent care, you know, you have to go to a service-based uh, business, right? Because if they're not, um, you know, if they're not getting good results, right, then people would leave. Now, the problem is, is when you go to a service-based business that's cash-based, it could be all marketing. So you don't really know. The second thing I go do is, have they published anything, right? So if you're a doctor, if you've been passionate about medicine, helping people, if you saw colloidal silver or red light therapy did something awesome that nobody else has seen or that you're seeing so widespread that you feel like we need to put the, like there's going to be a doctor or clinical team that's going to say, I need to put this into the literature, right? So, and I'm not saying people who don't put it into literature don't, you know, have bad insights, but now you know, okay, it's somebody who's outside of the system and somebody who's, you know, who cares enough to take the extra step. When someone comes to you, to your office as a patient who's obese, what is the first thing you recommend to them to start them off getting on track? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. It's uh, often very individual. I think it's easy in our modern world to say to somebody with, with severe obesity, uh, and particularly if they have prediabetes, diabetes, if they have severe obesity, prediabetes or diabetes, it's very easy to say cut your carbohydrates, processed carb, sugar, right? It's almost like you can you can close your eyes and, and turn a key. Um, when you, but when you do that, you have to be careful because there are some people like me, for example, who need not only a nutritional message, they also need a behavioral message, uh, and that's. That's tough to do. So, you know, if low carb worked for everybody and there weren't more things to, to do, Atkins would have solved this problem a long time ago. You know, so uh, I, before we got on, I was telling you about my day. I mean, we had a patient who had Cushing's disease, which is a hormonal state caused by a brain tumor who had come to me because it was difficult to lose weight. So um, it's complicated, right? It's not always as simple as you know, go low carb and there may be a weird, you know, issue, whether it's genetics or, you know, some hormonal issue, you know, but, but even those are rare. 
the most common, you know, brain tumors are rare causes of obesity. Yeah, thank um, goodness, right? Yeah, but most commonly, there's serious issues with relationship to food. Like, I'll give you a quick example. If my, I drive a, uh, a Model 3 Tesla, right? And if I have a flat tire and my wife sees it and comes and tells me, you know, hey, you know, Tro, you have a flat tire, don't drive the car, right? My emotions would be, holy crap, I feel supported, thankful, like, thank you for finding that out. I wouldn't have seen it, right? And I would say, thank you. I'd feel gratitude. And so what I do next is fix the car. And if my wife comes and tells me as I'm about to eat a pizza, when I, and she did when I was 350 pounds, you know, and she would say, maybe you shouldn't eat that for your health. You know, I'm angry, agitated. I say, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm a grown man. Don't tell me what to do. And those feelings that I have, the emotions are not gratitude and support and love. They're anger, agitated, you know, uh, defensive, obstinate, stubborn. And so, you know, when you have this kind of baseline emotional disconnect between your desire to be a healthier person, eat better, and your emotions uh, aren't exactly the same as any other thing you'd advocate for, you have to start to ask yourself, is there a relationship to food that needs to be explored? And, you know, does this person um, need more help than nutrition? Now, I'll tell you, the people coming to me, 20% need nutrition only, right? But Just 20%? People, just 20%. But again, I'm the low-carb MD guy. I'm the guy who talks about food addiction. I'm the guy who – so I'm the guy who says, if nobody else has helped you, come to me. So you know, it could be that the people coming to me are um, – you know, resonate to that message – and and uh, we're helping those people to a, a pretty significant degree, um, but eighty percent, and and I'd say maybe even more than that, ninety percent have a serious relationship to food issue, where it's not just the nutrition. There's a lot more than nutrition, and that takes coaching, that takes support, that takes empowering patients, right? That to to not blame themselves and to become an active participator in their health and a lot of confidence building, coaching, interaction, a lot of, hand, you know, it's a, it's a different community. You know, you can, you can turn to the AA model to kind of get a sense of what that would look like. But even more than that, we're a medical team of doctors, coaches, personal trainers, you know, we're monitoring, you know, scales, blood pressure, cuffs, you know, sleep studies, uh, uh, glucose meters in real time. I mean, it's a, it's a very, you know, immersed weight loss experience. Well, I think so, that can be a real relief of shame for a lot of people just to hear you describe that because I think um, it's tempting for like the average person to look at their, you know, their body mass index or whatever as a math equation. And what you're describing is not at all math. I mean, it is a little bit, but it's more complicated than that, just as humans are more complicated. And as you alluded to food addiction, I've heard you say in another interview, some calories, eating some calories leads to eating more calories, which isn't that, uh, if I remember right, the Greek yogurt experiment that you did? I think you're talking about the time where I took a plain Greek yogurt. I put a tub of it and it was like, all right, I didn't eat all day. And I ate a tub of yogurt plain and I was ridiculously full. I had to force myself to finish the tub. You know, it's not a lot of calories. It's like 600 calories, but you know, I, I couldn't make myself eat more. 
And then the next day I was like, all right, let me fast again and see what happens if I just add strawberries. And it's not a lot of calories, the strawberries. And you'd think more calories would make me more full. It didn't. I finished the tub, the strawberries. I wanted more. I, I, I ate two tubs and I was still hungry for more. And I did that. I was like, okay, well, was this the fruit or is it the sweet taste? And I did the same thing the next day, didn't eat anything and just put, it was a sweetener. I forget if it was Splenda or Stevie or what it was. And I ate two tubs and I was still hungry at the end. And not everybody responds the same way. And this is just me self-experimenting, but you know, those carbohydrates can make you eat more. The sweet taste can make you eat more. And so if you have food addiction, if you have a if you need help more than just cut your carbs, you know, these are, this is the type of expertise you really need. So what, before starting any new diet, what is important for, you know, average people to know before they try something different? Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If you ever wonder where I find guests for the show, the answer is it varies a lot. And since it's something that gets asked a lot, I started including the backstory of each episode in my Monday emails. And then on Saturday, I share cliff notes and clickable links in case what you heard was so good you wish you could have taken notes. If you want to be included, text REAL to 66866 if you're in the US or go to MeredithForReal.com if you're elsewhere. If insects are retreating into your home as the weather gets colder, but you feel sketched out by pesticides, I recommend Insect. I've used their service for years and over and over, I'm impressed at their thoughtful approach to pest control. They even set out mosquito traps in my yard once to see what species was giving me so much trouble. That's where their certified mosquito identification specialist comes in handy. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. If you watch the show on YouTube, then you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. This is just one museum under the umbrella of the UWF Historic Trust. If you're planning a trip to Pensacola and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket. It's good for a whole week. Get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. Yeah. So, so what are the side effects of dieting? That's what I would, and maybe we could do this like right now. Like how do you eat right now? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. How do you eat? Yeah. Pretty, pretty low carb actually. Um, I like for breakfast, I usually like bone broth, um, beef bone broth with spinach and two poached eggs. And then, you know, so you're really, you're paleo low carb. That That's already a paleo. <laughs> so if somebody tells me that, tells me they're into the kind of tribal paleo real food space. Okay. Uh, and then what's for lunch? Um, just sort of depends. Lunch is usually a leftover of whatever I had, whatever I made for dinner. So I usually cook three or four times a week. Um, so it's usually some sort of animal protein and, uh, you know, some sort of side, usually like a, a veggie or yeah, not, not usually sometimes rice. I do like rice, like uh, a Jasmine rice, but yeah. So like a protein vegetable on occasion, a carbohydrate. Yeah. And then coffee okay. afterwards. I always love okay. afternoon coffee, so coffee to top your meal. And then what's for dinner? Uh, if you do dinner. 
Yeah, I do dinner. Um, let's see. Um, we just bought a cow. <laughs> so <laughs> it's usually me going to the freezer and picking out some sort of cut of the cow. So um, like steak and maybe like sweet potato or um, I love so mushrooms. Like a paleo, low-ish carb, very yeah. low glycemic index, real food diet. Yeah. Right. So let's just say you had, uh, let's pretend, you know, this is you 10 years ago before you ate these things. Okay. Were you eating those things 10 years ago? I was. Yeah. Oh, you were. What about 15 years ago? Um, if we go all the way back to high school, which would be 20 yeah. plus years ago. Uh, no, I was eating, um, you know, the standard American diet. And I was a, a soccer goalie who had just quit soccer. And I don't know if you know about soccer goalies, but we thick. <laughs> so I was still eating like I was a soccer goalie. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, ram, ramen noodles for breakfast. Ramen noodles and peanut butter. Perfect. <laughs> Let's say I come to you, ramen noodles and peanut butter. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, listen, to be healthy, you got to cut everything out. You got to cut the, let, pretend it's not even low carb. I'm like, cut your calories. Maybe I say cut your carbs. Maybe I say cut processed food. doesn't matter. I'm telling you to cut something. Okay. So I tell you to cut something. What's the side effect of cutting something? I'm hungry. Yeah. Hunger is one. Go, keep going. Um, like if you had told high school Meredith that, I would have been yeah. uh, panicked also because- Panicked? My, what am I going to eat? Yeah. Yeah. Because my blood sugar would um, spike and drop and I'd fall asleep in class. And, okay, and so that hungry feeling made me feel sick. So, okay. So you'd have reactive glycemia. Like, what am I going to do when I'm like sick yeah. and, and I need something to pick me up? So hung, hungry, panicked. What else? Pissed. <laughs> about pissed. So you mean hangry? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Totally. So hangry. Yep. What else? Um, Let's say you do it. Yeah, you cut whatever it is I mm -hmm. said, right? Yeah. Your calories, cut whatever, cut your time off of real life and spend more time on MyFitnessPal. Whatever it is, <laughs> you cut something. <laughs> Okay. Right. So what happens to you a weekend? You're hungry. You're pissed off. You're like, what the hell am I going to do when I feel like shit? Yeah. Okay. What, what else are the side effects? Um, I mean, there's like that pushback of whatever you tell me to do. Like, ah, I'm not going to do that. Feelings of deprivation. Why can't I have that? Yeah. I want to do what you told me. And why can't I eat the things that I used to eat and what they're eating and what's going on? Right. Yeah. So feelings of deprivation. So hunger, cravings, feelings of deprivation, and a little bit of anxiety of what the hell am I going to do? Yes. What else? I mean, I think that pretty much covers it. Those are that covers it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got the holidays going on right now. I don't know when this podcast is going to happen, but and when it's going to air. But we have Christmas coming up. Okay, so the holidays are are coming up. And uh, what's going to happen when everybody's not eating bone broth and poached eggs? What's going to happen? <laughs> it's just going to come all back because I'll okay. be at that those parties. And, so you're yeah. going to have social triggers, and mm -hmm. maybe you and whoever are going to go on vacation somewhere, right? And what yeah. are you going to eat there? I mean, right? so, yeah, airport food. Yeah, airport food and whatever, <laughs> right? So so what happens is, is, so you're not prepared. So you're hungry, you have cravings, feelings of deprivation, um, don't quite understand what it is you're going to, anxious to some degree. And then you're going to face, you know, holidays, um, you know, social situations, vacations where often people struggle. And then on top of all of that, right, so what happens when you're staring at that something that you know you shouldn't be eating? What happens? It's just like an internal battle. Yeah, you face the decision fatigue. So, um, so, so you face all these things. Decision fatigue, cerebral load, 
you know, social situations, vacations, holidays, feelings of deprivation, hunger, cravings. So if you start a diet and you haven't addressed those things and you're like me, despite being highly educated, you don't know what you're up against. Remember me struggling back then. What do you think is going to happen? Failure. Failure. Bingo. So if you don't take care of those things and you start a diet, expect to fail. And as long as you know that, as long as you know you're set up to fail, then go do what you want to do, right? And if you can't manage those things, don't do it, right? Or don't do it expecting much more than what you're putting in. That so, is interesting. Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good perspective. So the thing is is how do we how do we empower people to take the first steps and and uh, how do we stand by them and not elicit shame and guilt and, and all those things that make people want to withdraw? How do we make them a partner in their own care? How do we build their confidence? You know, how do we get them to understand that everybody, including everybody who makes those commercials, wants them to fail? Um, and, you know, once you can kind of create that mindset, which takes time, right, it, that's, that's the secret sauce. Impatient empowerment is the secret sauce. That is the, you know, if you said, what is, why is it that, you know, these schmucks did four pounds, you know, <laughs> these schmucks literally did four pounds and they're publishing it. I would be freaking I wouldn't publish it. That's what I'm so surprised. I I'm like, I, I would have been embarrassed. It. I would have been like, okay, you, you know, University of Pennsylvania, Department of General Internal Medicine. I'm sorry, guys, but I would be embarrassed to publish this, yeah. you know, but the, the, the thing is, is how do we. How do we actually help people? It's you have to empower them and you have to actually have an effect. Uh, well, tragically, our time is coming to a close. Is there anything else that you want oh, people man, to I know? Told you, let me tell you, Meredith, when you contacted me, like, we should talk about what we're going to do. And I'm like, I can talk. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I feel so embarrassed that I talk so much. I'm sorry. No. Yeah, not more of a discussion here, Meredith. No, you, know? you did really, really great. I, I yeah. really think that the more people can have a different voice in the health space, the more that they will know just what you said, that they can be more empowered than they are currently. And I think that knowledge will allow them to kind of go down this path of discovery to figure out not only what's going on with their own body, their connection to food, as you said, their relationship with food, but also sussing out people that are you know, more educated. And just because they have more education, it doesn't mean that they're automatically a right fit for you. And this generation, I think, is doing a better job at questioning authority. But like my parents, that generation and the generation just above them, they definitely do whatever their doctor tells them to. So I think just having this conversation and letting them hear it is empowering, knowing that there are physicians out there who are middle of the road, not, you know, totally um, going to go do ayahuasca in the forest <laughs> and not totally just going to put you on a statin um, because you're 40. And that's what we do. Well, so, so I'm not convinced that our generation is any better. Uh, if you're talking about 20 to 40, let's say, if you look at, you know, the adolescent uh, and young uh, young student. Uh, so, so there was an article that got published by, uh, you know, kind of friends of mine, uh, in the British medical journal 
about maybe we got the booster situation wrong in kids and we shouldn't have uh, recommended it to them. Uh, you know, certain European countries are, but if you look at the United States, certain European countries no longer recommend boosters for kids, right? Under 40. If you look at the adoption in the United States, it's wild compared to Europe. And so I don't know how, if we have enough question, I'm not telling you to be, listen to your doctors. Don't, you know, this is a very nuanced discussion, but I'm not sure we're questioning enough. Yeah. And even that young people, I don't think we're questioning enough. Sorry if I brought a controversial topic up, but no, no, no. I think um, it's good because we need to learn the questions to ask and it's okay to Ex, you know, walk into a subject matter and only have questions. And, you know, as uh, it's easy for <laughs> adults, <laughs> I don't know, I feel so weird. I'm an adult now. But yeah. so it's, you know, it can feel unsettling to not even know the question to ask. It feels very, you feel like you're floating out in space. And so I think that, uh, yeah, this is all good. This conversation was good. Uh, I'm so glad people will know about your clinic and the resource. So tell everyone where they can, you know, follow your podcast. And if they're local to you, even engage in your practice. Yeah. So our practice is uh, in 48 states. So we are a telemedicine practice, two physicians, uh, three health coaches, two personal trainers, uh, awesome front desk staff, uh, great onboarding team. Um, we've published seven or eight papers, nine papers now. I forget how many we're working on more. Uh, yeah, if you want to find us, drtro.com spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-T-R-O.com. And yeah, we have a podcast. Uh, we've been going on four years, top, I don't know, 10 in medicine usually, and uh, low-carb MD podcast. And uh, it's, uh, if you are not tired of hearing me at this point, go check the podcast out. <laughs> but, um, you know, this was awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Did you think of someone you know while you listened? Help me grow the show by sharing this episode with that person. There's a share button right on your podcast app. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did with an expert on food addiction. It's episode 76. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a developmental psychologist who shares insight into what makes childhood boy friendships easy, but adult male friendships hard. <laughs>